I had the opportunity on uh, on Friday. You know, Lee Summit did not have school Friday. They also did not have school Thursday because anytime snow is in the forecast, Lee Summit has begun canceling school. It was the only major school district in the entire city that canceled. But Thursday, no school. Friday, no school. Monday, no school. So um, it, it's not a stretch to say that my kids have been driving me crazy the last few days. And I am ready, along with my wife, for them to go back to school. But on Friday, we had a little date day with, uh, with our kids. My daughter's eight. My little boy is ten. Uh, and I don't know if you heard, but the Beauty and the Beast is out on 3D in theater. And my little girl, uh, she considers herself a, a Disney princess. She has all the Barbies, all the dolls. Uh, Disney World is her favorite place in the world. So we decided to go see the Beauty and the Beast uh, with uh, my son and my daughter, my wife and me. We took our next door uh, neighbor along as well. Casey's one of Casey's best little friends. And, and we went uh, to Independence to go see a movie. And before we ate, uh, before we went to see the movie, uh, we ate at one of the finest dining institutions in Kansas City, Chick-fil-A, uh, which is one of my favorite places to, uh, to eat. And we were at Chick-fil-A and we ordered our food and we were sitting there and we were eating and about halfway through our meal, uh, Danielle said, Christian, can you go get me a refill of Diet Coke? So I walked up there and, and, uh, and got her a refill and came back and sat down. And she was kind of chuckling at me. And I said, what? And she leaned over and she said, uh, she said I, think, I think your shirt is on backwards. And I said, what? And she said, yeah, I think you're I think, inside out. I think your shirt is on inside out. I can see your tag. And I thought... You know, I looked down, and it looked normal, but I felt on the back. And it wasn't like one of those little tags that, like, you can tear off. It was like a tag, like this big, that was, like, plastered on the back of my shirt. So I thought, okay. So I, you know, real kind of shamefully, you know, worked my way back to the bathroom because I was embarrassed, changed my shirt, and came back to sit down. And when I came back to sit down, Danielle wasn't there for some reason. But there was a couple sitting right behind us at Chick-fil-A that kind of looked like the grandpa off of... um, uh, Beverly Hills Hillbillies, you remember the guy who struck gold, and then they moved the, the grandpa and, and the grandma. Just, I mean, kind of real old, rugged, rough people. And as I'm walking back to the table, they're laughing at me, laughing out loud at me. And I sit down at the table, and he said, Wondered how long it was going to take you to notice that your shirt was on inside out. And I said, You know, yeah, my, you know, my wife told me, I said, you know, the, you know, I was kind of embarrassed, which I tried to talk my way out. You know, these days, you know, you, you can hardly tell which, which side's supposed to go. He said, well, I saw the tag as soon as you took your, your coat on. And I thought, you know, you, you, you're right. I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. And he started chuckling again. He said, kids your age, they wear their clothes so weird anyway. And I said, you want me to shove this chicken finger right up your, I'm telling you, brother, I get it. All right. My shirt was on inside out. My bad. So I get home later that day. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror, and I thought, you know, I look the same as when I left. Now my shirt's on correctly. But I thought, this looks like what I look like this morning. So I took my shirt off, and I began to survey it. And I, you know, looked at it the correct way, turned it around inside out. It was one of those, uh, what I would call almost like a long johns, or a, uh, yeah, is that what those are called? The, yeah, the long john pajamas that, you, that kids before Under Armour occurred. Yeah, like the thermal underwear, the long underwear. Um, it's kind of made out of that kind of quality. Of, of, uh, of, I don't know, what's that stuff called? Texture? Wool? Whatever. Uh, you can tell I'm, I'm big on words today. But I looked at it, and, and I looked at the shirt, and I turned it around, and then I flipped it inside out, and I looked at it again, and I thought, this shirt, except for the tag, and it's a big tag that I should have noticed, but I didn't look at the back when I put it on. I never look at my, the back of myself in the mirror. Um, I thought, this shirt looks the exact same on the inside that it does on the outside. Other than the tag, it looks the exact same on the inside as it does the outside. didn't have any big lettering on the chest or anything. And I thought, this shirt, it's hard to know. Which, well, it's not really hard. But for me that day, it was hard to know because it looked the same on the inside as it did on the outside. 
And I had this thought hit me for today's message that I had already prepared. I thought, I wonder how many people in our church look the same inside spiritually that they look on the outside spiritually on Sunday morning. I wonder how many of us are the exact same on the inside spiritually as we appear to be on the outside spiritually when we stand in church, sit in church, sing in church on Sunday, or not just on Sunday, throughout, throughout the week when we go back to school, when we go to work, when we're, when we're at home. How many of us look different on the inside than we appear to be outside spiritually? That is really the content of our message today. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's a book that we began studying last week that we'll study for a few more weeks. If you're brand new to our church or maybe you forgot your Bible, our ushers are going to come down uh, the aisles and they're going to pass out Bibles. We'd love for you to have a Bible in your hand to be able to read along in the text with us. So if you forgot your Bible or if you just don't have one, wave at the usher. They'll give it to you. If you have one and you just forgot it, throw it on the table when you leave. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, this is yours to keep. Our church is, uh, has now given away over 200 Bibles in the last 14 weeks. Um, and we just ordered another 100 and, and hope to give those away sooner than later because we want people at our church to be able to have their Bible in their hand if they want it. And we've been studying through this book, First Thessalonians. And today we come to chapter 2. Last week we studied chapter 1 and our, the content of last week's message um, was turning the world upside down. And we hear that this little church that took only three weeks to found and get up off the ground was a church that, according to the people who talked about this church, was a church that turned the world upside down. So last week was about a church turning the world upside down. This week is about an individual living inside out, truly becoming the person on the inside that God wants us to become and then allowing our lives to show that on the outside. If you're brand new to our church, one of the little things we hand in you today uh, is a sermon outline. You should have got a pen as well. You can take notes on this and follow along uh, as we go. But we're in Second or First Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read through verses 1 through 13, and then we'll come back and we'll study what, uh, what the Christian mindset, what our Christian mindset should be as we get into this new year. And here's what the Apostle Paul says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error, impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, nor from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you'd become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses. And so is God of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. Verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. It's really interesting. As, as I said a few minutes ago, last week, Paul, uh, we, we really studied what Paul said about a church. 
And this was a a healthy church that had turned the world upside down. But today, Paul doesn't speak as much to a church as he does to a person. And what he talks about in 1 Thessalonians 2 is the mindset that a Christian should have. Here is how a Christian who's living for God, whose life is blessed of God, here's how they should think and here's the type of life that they should live. Yet what he begins with, here's really interesting. That's the meat of chapter 2, how a Christian should think and live. But what he begins with, as I studied the text this week, I thought, you know, this is really, really good. Because I've studied this text, I've preached through this chapter, but I've never really seen this. Before Paul tries to help us fix our mindset spiritually, the fact that he presented to us in the first three verses was this. And and I'm going to go by this quickly, but I want you to hear it and focus on it. Paul wants us to know that we can't fix our mindset spiritually until we've resolved our past. He begins not talking about the future, really not even talking about the present, but he begins by talking about the past. And Paul said, you can't begin to go forward spiritually until you are past your past. You have to get past your past. I want you to say out loud, get past your past. Turn to the person next to you and tell them to get past their past. See, what Paul is saying to us right now, is Paul says, I've got a lot of things to tell you spiritually. I've got a lot of things for you to learn spiritually. I've got a lot of things that can change your life spiritually. But if you don't get past your past, you're never going to be able to live in the future. So he gives us some great content today, but in the first three verses, he has three words that I want you to circle as we read through them again that he had to deal with and that the people in this Thessalonian church had to deal with before they could go on and live for God. He said, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. I want you to circle that word failure. If you have your notes page, you might even write that down, that word failure. For we had previously suffered. I want you to circle the word suffered. Or if you have a highlighter, highlight it. Or if you have a pen, underline it. Do something to make it stand out. And then in a minute, jot it down on your sermon notes. We'd suffered and we'd been insulted. I want you to write the word insult down. He said, you know, our visit wasn't a failure. We'd suffered. We'd been insulted. But he said we kept on going. I've got three words today before. I mean, this is even before we get into the meat of the message. Three words for someone in here today. Maybe one word is for you. Maybe all three are for you. Maybe a couple are for you. But Paul gives us three words today that we have to get past if we're going to move forward and live for God. And I want you to jot these down. I don't think they're on your sermon notes. The first one is the word failure or what I would say is perceived failure. Paul said, you know, everyone in town looks at us like we failed spiritually. But he said, we didn't. You have to see through as a Christian living your life today, January 15, 2012. You have to look at all of the past of your life and even all the things that you would consider failure, a failed marriage, kids that are away from God. A failed job. Maybe you dropped out of school and didn't finish your education. You have to look at all your failures and where you are today and say, you know what, I've got to see through it. I could consider it a failure or it could just be a stepping stone to the rest of my life. The perception is for Paul and his church that they were run out of town after three weeks. They went to Thessalonica. They tried to plant a church after three weeks. They all got run out of town and the town looked at them and said, you guys are failures. You couldn't even make it a month. But Paul says, we didn't fail. The whole world has heard about your church. The reality is that the world is talking about your church. Perception, people might look at you and say you failed, but the reality is we did not fail. What we did, the whole world is talking about. Some of you are looking at your life and all you see is failure. 
you perceive failure. And what you need to know, before you can go on and live spiritually, you need to know your life is not a failure. Your previous marriage or marriages do not mean you're a failure. Where your kids are spiritually does not mean you're a failure. What happened in your family does not mean you're a failure. The business decision you made does not mean you're a failure. Losing your job or being unemployed does not mean you're a failure. You have to see through all that. Paul said, i got a lot of things to tell you spiritually, but until you can get past your past, until you can get past the failures, you're not going to be able to go on and live for God like you need to. He said, you've got to be able to get past failures. You have to be able to get past insults. And the message that Paul gives us to insults is that, hey, they're going to come. He doesn't even tell us how he dealt with them. He just says, you have to move on. We were insulted. Big deal. We got insulted. What was the reality of this insult? He said we were insulted at Philippi. That was the town that they were in right before they came to Thessalonica. And what happened when they were in Philippi? They, they went there, they started a church, and they got thrown in jail. Without a trial, without questioning, without any legal representation, they got thrown in jail because they thought these were just some Jews from Israel that had basically no rights as citizens in the Roman Empire, and they threw them in jail, Paul and Silas's buddy. And you know the story, they were singing at night and God opened the jail doors and the the jailer thought that they had escaped and they indeed hadn't escaped and they led the jailer to faith in Jesus and then his entire family to faith in Jesus. But it all began with an insult because Paul actually was a Roman citizen. And the next morning when they found out he was a Roman citizen, they tried to have him leave town quietly. He said, I'm not going to leave town quietly. You've insulted me. You've broken the law. And he said, I want you to escort me out of town. To show people that I'm not the person that you said I was. That he, he was insulted. But I love Proverbs 19.11. Proverbs 19.11. And some of you need to write this verse down. Some of you who have been insulted or some of you who will be insulted. That includes all of us. Need to memorize Proverbs 19.11. Because here's what Proverbs 19.11 says. Sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. Man, a few years ago, one of my mentors gave me that verse and said, Christian, you have to learn to overlook when people wrong you. You've got to learn to overlook when people insult you. They're just human. Get over it. Overlook it. Quit holding on to grudges. Quit holding on to anger. Quit holding on to bitterness. What does it say? Sensible people earn respect. But when they're insulted, they overlook it and they move by it. The reality of this church, the Philippian church, they became the most generous and giving and impactful church that Paul had started. Paul bragged about them, that this church gave more willingly, gave more freely. Now, what if Paul had been a jerk? What if Paul had told everyone how he'd been insulted? What if Paul made them pay him back for the way that they insulted instead of being a gentle, humble Christian? He probably would have had a church full of angry jerks that held on to everything anyone ever did against him. But because he was soft and he overlooked an insult, he had an entire church that became the most generous church that he knew. And then Paul said suffering. For him, the suffering was over. Now, maybe some of you are in the midst of suffering, and for you it's not over. But some of us in here are mentally prolonging our suffering that actually could be and should be over. Because we just replay it in our minds over and over and over, and we're holding on to it so tightly. How how did he suffer? He was jailed. He was beaten. We read that he was hunted. They went from town to town trying to find him so they could put him back in jail. But the reality, according to Paul, he said, that's in the past. Did I suffer? Yes, I did. Was it horrible? Yes, it was. I wish I didn't have to do it. Yeah, I did. It's not a good memory. But Paul said in Philippians 3, one of of the greatest verses that there is in the Bible, 
Paul said, I have to focus on this one thing. I have to forget the past and look forward to what lies ahead. We've got to get past our past. Say, get past my past. Now everyone say, get past my past. Listen, we want to move on to have a Christian mindset in this year that shapes our lives in a way that we live for God and our church becomes a church that's known for people who live for God. But if we can't get past our past, we can't let the things that happen stay in the past and move on towards the future, we can't do that. So Paul says, I want to help you understand how to live for God, but step one, you've got to get past your past. You've been insulted. I'm sorry, but it's time to move on. You've suffered. Okay, but possibly it's over. Paul said, you've got to get past your past. Maybe you failed. Hey, chalk it up to a, a learning experience and move forward. Got to get past your past if we're going to develop a Christian mindset. And what is the Christian mindset? Three things that the Apostle Paul wants us to know in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The first we find in the first part of verse 4. Paul said, first and foremost, you need to understand as a Christian that you have been entrusted with the gospel. You've been entrusted with the gospel. The gospel, by the way, if, if you don't know what that means, means good news. Specifically in this context, the good news of Jesus. You ought to jot that down on your sermon notes if you didn't know that. That's what gospel means. You've been entrusted with the good news of Jesus. First Thessalonians 2, the first part of verse 4, he says, On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, the word entrusted literally means trusted with. God, God trusts you with the good news of Jesus. He trusts you to take care of it. God has given it to you trusting that you will take care of it. Now, a, a, uh, this summer, or maybe it was last summer, my son turned nine. Uh, and we decided he, that the one thing he wanted for his birthday more than anything was an iPod. So we asked all the family, instead of buying presents, will you give the money you would have given for his present? Will you give it to us? And we're going to pull all the money together, and we're going to buy Christian an iPod. And we got him an iPod, and he just loved it. We trusted him with his own iPod and his headphones. And you know what? A few months ago, he lost it. He laid it down somewhere. He can't remember where it is. And after a dozen or more conversations and searching the house up and down, we just we don't know where it is, and we're not going to buy him a new one because they're expensive. And, and we had this conversation where we said, you know, maybe you're not old enough to be trusted with those kind of things because you laid it down somewhere, and you don't know where, and you forgot it, and now you've lost it. You know, there are a lot of Christians who were trusted with the good news of Jesus who treated it like Christian treated his iPod. You laid down the good news of Jesus somewhere, and, and you forget about it every Monday through Saturday. And maybe you find it every Sunday, and you remember, oh, yeah, God loves me, and Jesus loves me, and Jesus has forgiven me, and he's changed me. But then you go out, and then you just leave it in your car, and it never impacts your home, and it never impacts your family, and it never impacts your friends, and it never impacts your work. Paul says God has trusted us. To take care of the good news of Jesus. How do we take care of the good news of Jesus? There's two primary ways the Bible says that, that we can take care of the good news of Jesus. First and foremost, he says you can be grateful for it. The Old Testament is filled with verses that say things like, let us enter his courts with thanksgiving. Let us enter his gates with praise. That's why we start a church service. Some of you who are brand new to church say, why do you sing first? Because that's what the Bible says to do when you want to enter the presence of God. One of the first things you do is sing and thank God. That's, that's what we're doing. We're, we're through song. We're saying thank you. And some of you, 
You don't have to sing. You can tap your foot. That You can sway back and forth. You, you know, you can play Angry Birds. You can do what you want. But that's what we're doing during that time. We're, we're giving praise as a group for something good that has happened. Jesus in our life. And you say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not into singing. I'm not into getting together with a crowd of people and praising something good that's happened. Sure you are. Have you ever been to a Chiefs game? You ever been to a Chiefs game when they score a touchdown? And, and that great song kicks on? And the whole stadium sings together, we're going to beat the... Don't say it, we're in church. But you know what I'm saying, right? We all sing together our praises for what has happened at Arrowhead Stadium on the field because we're excited about it. That's That's what being trusted with the gospel is. It, it's being able to say thank you. We're trusted to, to appreciate the gift that's been given to us. But then the Bible says that Christians are trusted to share it. We're trusted to share the good news of Jesus and to tell other people about it. My, my challenge to you, if I could have one challenge to you this week, you know, Jesus at one point in the Bible healed a group of, of, uh, of lepers. Leprosy was a disease that was really taboo uh, 2,000 years ago. If you had leprosy, you weren't even allowed to come into town. I mean, you were totally an outcast. Uh, even as, as soon as 100 years ago uh, in the Hawaiian Islands, if, if somebody got leprosy, they sent them to, to Molokai. It was a totally different island. They weren't even allowed the general population uh, allowed around them because they didn't know how to heal it. They didn't know how to take care of it. And we're told a story where Jesus healed 10 lepers. And he told them after he had changed their life, he said, now go tell somebody. Go tell someone what has happened. And, you know, so many of us have received the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And we've been trusted with it, but we've been trusted to go share it. And we've not shared it yet. You know, every person in our church should be telling at least one person in our life what God has done. And that's, that's my one challenge for you this week. My one challenge for you this week is for you to tell someone what God has done in your life. You can write it in an email. You can send a text message. If you have a blog, you can blog about it. You can tweet. I don't care. You, you can tell your neighbor. You can tell a coworker. You can tell your spouse. You can tell your kids. You can tell one of your pets if you need to practice on someone who won't talk back to you first. But I want you this week because we've been trusted God trusts us to take care of the gospel. One of the ways we take care of it is by sharing it and making sure others hear it. I want you to tell someone what's going on. You know, April at our church this year uh, is going to be Bring a Friend Month all month long. It's the Easter season, Palm Sunday, April 1, Easter, April 8. And on that month, we're going to ask everyone in our church to bring at least one friend at one point in that month. It's going to be Bring a Friend Month. We're all going to try to bring a friend. But really, every week for the Christian who has been trusted with the gospel should be sharing about what God has done in our life. So the Christian mindset is somebody who's going to be grateful for what has happened in their life. They're going to talk about it. They're going to share it. Secondly, the Christian mindset is a mindset that we should live for God. And, and I want to be honest with you. I think a lot of us understand this. We get this. We would say we do this, but in reality, we don't. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, live for God. But look at what the Apostle Paul says in the second half of verse 4, and I'm going to go through the first half of, uh, of verse 6. Here's what Paul says about his life and his ministry. We are not trying to please men. We're trying to please God who tests our hearts. You know that we never use flattery, nor do we put, up, put, put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We weren't looking for praise from men, not from you or from anyone else. Now, let's get real with each other for, for just a second. How many times this week 
Did you stop before making a decision? Before doing something? Did you stop for even 10 seconds and think, what does God want me to do here? What would God want me to do here? I mean, even in simple decisions. You know, Christians, I think, by and large, have quit living for God. We live for church. We do some religious things. But there aren't very many moments where we sit down as as a couple or as a Christian or as a family and say, what do you think God wants us to do here? If you never have a decision where you have to ask yourself what God wants you to do, you're not making any kind of important decisions in the course of your life. I'm talking about little things and big things. Some of you are making decisions because you have a Bible verse that you've read and you think, well, that Bible verse allows me to make that decision. Yeah, but have you asked God? Your God is not the Bible. Have you ever asked God, God, what do you want me to do? I, I try to be so set on doing this that it drives our staff team crazy because sometimes I'll wait a month to make a decision about something in our church if I don't feel that I know yet what God wants me to do. And I'll just tell them, I just don't know yet. I'm not sure yet what God wants me to do because I, I try to live for God. Do you ever think about God and what he wants your life to be? If we were to be honest, most of us aren't even in church today because we believe God wanted us to come to church today. We're in church today because it's Sunday, and that's kind of what we've been raised to do or it's what we've begun doing or it's where our friends are, it's where our family goes. Most of us didn't wake up and say, God, what do you, what do you want me to hear from you today at church? What do you want me to learn? God, what do you want me to do for you? Most Christians don't really live for God. And Paul says, listen, don't live for men Live for God. Why? I want you to hear this key phrase. Here's why Paul says this, and here's why Jesus echoed this in his ministry. Men judge our hearts. They pass judgments on us. They make criticisms about us. They make up their mind about us. But God tests our hearts. Men judge us. God tests us. And you know what? It's no fun to be judged. It's no fun to be pointed at. It's no fun to have somebody try to box you into some certain aspect. But Paul says, look, I'm going to live for God because God can truly know my heart. Men may think they know me, but they don't. Only God truly knows my heart. And here's what God said in in 1 Samuel 16, 7. God talked about knowing a man's heart. The Lord said to Samuel, this is right before David who uh, killed Goliath. We'll study that story this summer, David and Goliath. The Lord said to Samuel, don't consider David's appearance or his height. He was just a little dude. So for I've rejected him. Because the Lord doesn't look at things a man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here was somebody who was going to be king of Israel, who Samuel, a man, looked at him and said, Nah, he's not good enough. God said, Yeah, he is. You don't see him like I see him. He is good enough. In John 2, verses 24 through 25, right after Jesus had done some great miracle and everyone thought he was the greatest thing in the world, it said Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to men, for he knew all men. And he didn't need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. He said, listen, I don't need you to praise me for what I'm doing. I'm doing what God wants me to do. Whether you like it or hate it, I'm doing what God wants me to do. I love what he said in Matthew 11, verses 18 and 19, speaking of his cousin, John the Baptist. He was talking about people who were criticizing his ministry. He said, listen, John the Baptist came. He didn't come eating or drinking. They say he has a demon. He said, and I'm here now, and I'm eating and drinking. And they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Here's what Jesus is saying. You're never going to make anyone, everyone happy. So quit trying. Quit trying to live for the pleasure and the praise of men. Just live for God. Because men will change their mind about you. Don't live for people. 
live for God. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is when Jesus, uh, right before the, the, uh, what we would call the Passover in Scripture on Palm Sunday, uh, when Jesus rode into town on the back of a donkey and he told his disciples, go get this donkey. Uh, he literally told his disciples to steal a donkey. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, Jesus said, I need you to go steal a donkey. And I'm sure they gave it back. Uh, but he went to have them go get somebody's donkey who he had not even spoken to yet. And they said, uh, Lord, like, what happens if they see us stealing the donkey? And he said, just tell them that I told you to get it. You know, we're going to have a lot of areas in our life where when God speaks to us, we're not going to have people understand it. We're not going to have people like it. We're not going to have people agree with it. But all I need to hear from people that I know that walk with God, when, when I hear them say, listen, I really believe God wants me to do this, it's good enough for me. God tells you to steal a donkey, steal a donkey. God tells you not to steal a donkey, don't steal a donkey. But, but shouldn't we at least get back to the habit where it, at least we ask God, God, what do you want me to do about this? You think I should cuss on the golf course, God? I'm not asking whether I'll go to hell. I know I won't go to hell for cussing on a golf course because you've forgiven me, but... God, are you okay with me cussing when I'm angry? I just want to check with you. I want to do what you want me to do. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I would assume. That's an easy one. But you look at little areas like that. God, you okay with me taking a a month off church to go fishing every Sunday? God, you okay with me taking hunting season and not going to church? Just ask him. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying it's wrong when we don't even ask God, God, what do you want me to do? And most Christians don't even interact with God, much less live for Him. So I want to challenge you, live for God. When you live for God, it it helps you know uh, who you are and what you're doing. We had a a lady come in the second week of our church. Our church began September 18th of last year. And on the second Sunday, we had a lady come in who left right after the the welcome. We had our first song, and then I did the greeting. Um, and everyone shook hands and she left like literally after I got up instead of turning and greeting She turned and went home uh, And somebody asked her on the way out the door. Hey, what's going on? And she said I can't come to a church where the pastor wears jeans um, And listen because the truth is jesus never wore jeans So I, I would understand it from that aspect But I also don't know that he wore a skirt and I think or, or, or a suit And I think it would have freaked her out if I would have had like a full-length dress on which is probably what he he wore most of the time but I could have went home that Sunday and said, you know what, I need to start preaching in a suit. But then the other half of you would have left if I'd have shown up in a suit the next week. You know what we said when we, when we started this church? We said we're going to be a normal church for normal people. We're going to dress on Sunday like we dress during the week. And I still, I love to fight with my, my mom about this. My mom, my grandfather's been a pastor for more than 50 years. She's a dyed-in-the-wool traditionalist. Um, I'm sure she still prays and casts out demons every time we have an electric guitar on our stage. I mean, I love her to death, but we are really out there for, for my mom. Um, but, you know, she says to me, Christian, I just feel like you ought to dress up for Jesus on Sunday. I said, well, what, what about the rest of the week? What do you mean? Well, do you only live for Jesus on three hours on Sunday morning? I mean, you feel like you ought to dress up for Jesus. Don't, don't, don't we live for Jesus like all day, every day? Do you think we'll wear a suit and tie in heaven? Now we might, but I'm hoping it's basketball shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops. I mean, that's, that's what I'm going for in eternity, hopefully, or something like that. You see, for us, we decided what type of church we were going to be. So if somebody didn't like that, it wasn't going to change our mind because we feel like God told us to be a normal church for normal people and to have a real casual atmosphere. So people could come and feel at home here. That's what God told us, so we're not going to let anyone change our mind about that. It's 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
So what does Paul do? He gives us nine characteristics of someone who, who lives for God. And I'm going to go through these real quick. I, I don't know that you need to jot these down. You can if you want. Paul says that, that Christians who are living for God are always gentle towards others. The person in line who's in traffic who didn't see the light turn green, yeah, gentle, just soft, patient with people. He says gentle like a mother. You know, a mother has a certain characteristic of gentleness that others don't have. We, uh, last Sunday, went out to eat with uh, Chris and Amy Zerby after church. They were one of the original five families that helped us really start this church last January. Um, and they've got a, a little boy, Broden, who's, how old is Broden, Zerb? Is he one? One-ish? Seven months? Yeah, he's still pretty little. And uh, he was eating something, and he started gagging while we were all sitting there eating. And, I mean, you could tell, if you were a parent, you could tell this kid's going to blow. I mean, uh, uh, you know, and everyone, everyone was like inching away from the table except Amy. And she just put her hand out and let him throw up all in her hand and just caught it and just wiped it in a napkin and like patted his head. And I was like, only a mother, right? I mean, only a mother would let her kid vomit in her hand and then just go back and keep eating again. Gentle like a mother. Christian said, disgusting, my, my son Christian, when it happened. So, buddy, one day your wife will do that. Zerb did not even budge to attempt to help catch the vomit. Gentle like a mother, not like a father. Um, He said, Paul said that that Christians who live for God, he said they have the fellowship of life. What he was saying is Christians who live for God share their life with others. It's a really interesting statement here. You know, I I went to a a church planners conference about a year ago in February. uh, Saddleback Church out in California. Rick Warren pastors that church. He's written a few books. Pretty well-known guy. And he talked about historically the steps to revival when God moved greatly in the world. And he said the first two steps of ever experiencing revival is really interesting. He said first is personal renewal. Somebody just gets it deep in their heart that I really need to draw closer to God. In our church, we, you know, we call it rededicating. There's even a box on the back of your car, I'm rededicating my life. I feel like I need to get closer to God. But he said the second step of revival is always relational renewal. When someone realizes, I have to have more Christian friends in my life. You know, a lot of people, when they're wounded spiritually, they retreat into isolation. And it's interesting that the medicine for that is actually coming out of isolation and getting engaged with other people. That's why we're getting ready to start up our small groups. That's why as a church we have serving groups where people come and and hang out from really 7 a.m. until church starts. Because when you're around other Christian people, and it helps you live for God. You, you, people who are living for God, they share their life with others. They don't live in a monastery all by themselves. They get around people and live life together. Uh, he said people who live for God are holy, which means they're set apart for a purpose. People who live for God are righteous, which means they're right living morally. People who live for God are blameless, which means well-respected. doesn't mean perfect, but it means they're well-respected and people don't believe that they're doing wrong. So people who live for God are encouraging. People who live for God are comforting. These are, this is the list that Paul gave us. Uh, people who live for God urge others to live for God. Uh, they're kind of like a spokesman. They're real passionate that other people ought to try what they have experienced. You know, we've got a, uh, a, a girl in our church who was in my youth group for a long time. She sings on stage, the redhead Leslie. She's in the second row here. Uh, and a few years ago, she and some other people at our church got on this Mona V kick. You, you all remember the Mona V kick? Did that happen over here in Missouri? It was some fake drink that was supposed to make you feel better that cost like $1,000 for a bottle that looked like a bottle of wine. Leslie tried to pawn it on everyone at church. But for, for like a month, there was this. We're going to argue right now, I mean, in front of everyone. I got a microphone. You don't. You better be careful. Um, 
But for like a year, everyone was trying to push Mona V on everyone because it would change your life. I called it the snake oil. That's Liz. Where's the snake oil? Um, for, because they were passionate about it. Now it's title boxing. Um, my wife and a group of friends are trying to get everyone that they know to go to title boxing. And, and I have become less of a human being than my wife because I don't go to title boxing because she's gone and she beats up this bag and she's, she's tough now and very passionate about title boxing. And when people get passionate about stuff, they tell people, oh, you got to do this, you got to try this. This has been so wonderful. Christians who live for God, they do that. They're really excited about what God has done for them. They want other people to try it. And then lastly, Paul says they live lives that are worthy, uh, which is interesting. I, you know, I looked up this word. I thought, what does this word mean? Because I know none of us are worth what God has given us. Uh, and it literally means you try to honor. That's what it means. People who live for God, try, they try to honor God. Most Christians, I came from the world of youth ministry. I did student ministry for eight years. And most kids ask this question, not what honors God, but what makes God mad? You know, how do I stay on God's good side? If I do this, will God get mad? If I do this, will God get mad? If I do this, will it be a sin? Mature Christians, they don't ask that question. They say, what will honor God? I know I can do this. But would this honor God? You know, would I do this if he were here? True Christians try to live a life worthy of God. And it's, again, it's just asking those questions. Does God want me to do this? Would this honor God? It's just stop, stopping to think about your faith every now and then. So uh, a, a Christian has been entrusted with the gospel. A Christian needs to live for God, not other people. And a Christian, and, and I, I wish I had an entire series to to talk on number three. I don't. But a true Christian, according to the Apostle Paul and, and all of the New Testament, has to find their inner voice spiritually. And I wish there was a more concrete way for me to explain this to you. I wish there was a, a way for me to help you figure this out because some of you are saying, well, you know, like when you ask God, what do you want me to do? How do you know what he's saying? Like, does he talk to you? Does he email? How do you hear from God? Well, you learn to listen to the inner voice. Say, so what is the, that sounds kind of scary. Is, that, are, is this a cult? No, we're a church. This is the Bible. How do you find the inner voice? Look at verse 13. Paul says, we thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work. I want you to underline the next two words in you who believe. I looked at the 1984 NIV version, which is what I use, the updated NIV version, the New Living Translation, New King James. And it all says similar things. God at work in you, inside you. That's what we're talking about, inside out. What does it look like to find the inner voice? What Paul is talking about, and, and for those of you who are brand new to church, this may sound out there, but once you've experienced it, you get it. Paul's talking about your soul changing. He says that Jesus literally changes your soul. Now, the Bible refers to this oftentimes as your heart, refers to it as your mind, but it's talking about your soul. You, you change on the inside. In Hebrews 4.12, great verse that talks about how God works on the soul. For the word of God is living and it's active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's word penetrates to your soul and it begins to change your soul. Now, what does that look like? How, how does that happen? Just one very small example. Danielle and I, I love to see movies. 
I love to watch TV. It's the one time that my mind totally turns off. We have a few shows that we're watching. We're right now uh, catching up on, on the season of NCIS. We started at season one, and we're going all the way trying to catch up. Uh, it's been about a two-year process of getting through eight seasons so we can get current. Um, but we, we love watching. I used to love 24. I miss Jack Bauer. He's got a new show now. His name's not Jack Bauer, but I hope this guy's as cool as Jack Bauer. I mean, we love watching TV. Um, and a show that I used to watch, and by the way, I'm not telling you to watch these shows. They won't make you a better Christian. They might make you a worse Christian. So just hear me out. Um, but we used to watch a show called Criminal Minds. Any of you ever heard of that show, watch that show? It's a phenomenally interesting show about the uh, behavior analysis unit at Quantico. Um, and they study basically the behavioral traits of serial killers to catch them. Why anyone would want to watch that before they lay down to go to bed at night, I don't know. But we did often. Um, until... There were like four straight shows on serial killers and, you know, really bad things that were all going after children, like that were our age. And like it just, it made my heart sick, like my soul, you know, not my eyes, not my mind. It didn't give me bad dreams, but I just thought because it hit so close to my life, I thought this is not, this is not right for me. I don't want to watch this anymore. This doesn't feel right. You know what I'm talking when, you, when something happens? You say, this doesn't feel right. That's the inner voice. That's the soul inside you changing to say, let's not do this anymore. It's when you do something really, really good for someone and you feel really, really good inside. That's your soul affirming you. Good job. Let's do this more. This feels good. And when you do something not so good and you feel bad about it later, that's your soul telling you, you know, we should, we should probably not act that way anymore. We call it the Holy Spirit in the simplest explanation, and this is as simple as it gets. It's literally a God-controlled conscience. It's not just your conscience, you know, letting you know that's right, that's wrong, but it's a God-controlled conscience. It's literally like God takes control of that inner voice and says, do this, don't do this. And Paul would often ask Christians the question that Gatorade asks, is it in you? Is it in you? Gatorade said, Gatorade, is it in you? Paul would ask Christians, he did this at the end of 2 Corinthians, you know, you need to check to see if the Holy Spirit's in you. Is it in you? Do you ever hear it? Do you ever feel it? Do you communicate with it? Is God beginning to change you from the inside? It's literally like having spiritual rabbit ears. You remember rabbit ears in the days before cable and satellite and all that stuff? I know Robbie still uses his every, every now and then. Um, but, you know, remember those things that used to sit on top of the TV and, like, that point them in different directions? Am I the only one who's ever used rabbit ears? I, okay, so you know what those are. Literally, finding your inner voice is, is like getting a set of spiritual rabbit ears. And, like, you point one at the Bible... And then you point one at church or your small group or a mentor or a friend. And what you're constantly trying to do is you're constantly trying to figure out what is God saying here. You're trying to get good reception from God. God, what do you want me to do here? Now, people who don't live for God, don't care about God, don't ask God questions from time to time. God, what do you want me to do? They don't care. But people trying to find God will tune everything in their life to try to hear from God. They'll get around people that they think can help them understand God better. They'll start reading their Bible so they can understand God better. They'll get in church faithfully so they can understand God better. They'll go to a small group. Everything in their life is focused on hearing from God. really becomes a real relationship. Now, only really mature Christians have that relationship. When I first became a Christian, I became a Christian because I wanted to go to heaven. That was it. It, it wasn't because I wanted to hear from God. It wasn't because I had a question for God. It wasn't because I wanted to live for God. I just didn't want to go to hell. 
Anybody with me? I mean, that's that's the church I grew up in. It was like, do you want to go to hell? No. Uh, okay, then say this prayer and get saved. Cool. I can do that. Um, now I'm not going to go to hell. I mean, that was my motivation for the first 18, 19 years of my life. I didn't want to go to hell. And and God, I was told, got me to heaven and forgave me of my sins. So I didn't have to feel so guilty anymore. Two pretty good things that he did for me. But I began to learn the more I went through life that that living for God is so much more than just going to heaven and being forgiven. And, and I picture it this way. The, um, about a month ago, uh, I, I have a friend who, who works at a phone company in town. Uh, we went out to lunch, and I had this, like, three-year-old Blackberry with a cracked screen, and, you know, I couldn't, like, ever hardly read it. And he said, I need to get you a new phone. How much is your phone plan? And he asked me. And he said, I need to get you on my friends and family package. Come get on mine. We'll get you a new phone. You need to get an iPhone. Like, Cool. Everyone in my family had an iPhone but me, and they made fun of me about it often. Like, you know, like the guy was making fun of me about wearing my shirt inside out. He was like, man, when are you going to get an iPhone and get off your little Blackberry? So we walk in the store. I don't know what I'm buying. The only, I'm really technologically challenged. I use a phone to talk on the phone and to text, and that's about it. I can use my computer for the rest. So, you know, I walk in the store. We go out to lunch. He says, let's go get your phone. We walk in the store, and the guy says, what kind of phone do you want? So I look at my friend, and, and he tells him, get him that one. So they got me that one, and, you know, I, I got it, and they registered it, and I got a new phone number, and I went home, and I texted my family, said, hey, here's my new phone number. Uh, I, got a, I got an iPhone now, and they were all like, finally, congratulations. Welcome to 2012, you know, all these things, and my brother-in-law asked me, is it an i4S? Is it an iPhone 4S? And I said, I don't know. I didn't even pick it out. He takes me back, you don't know what kind of iPhone you have. I said, no. I know I can text and talk. That's about all that I do on a phone. So for about two weeks, I texted and that's about all I do on a phone, text and talk. And then we went up there for Christmas, and my brother-in-law me, let me see your phone. So he got my phone, he said, this is an i4s. I said, do you know what this phone does? And no, I talk and I text on that phone. Do you know you can ask this phone questions and it'll answer your questions? No. He said, watch this. So he starts asking questions, and the phone talks back to him. That's crazy. Do you know you can tell this phone to text people and to do it for you so you don't have to type? I said, no way. So yeah, so he does it. So he showed me all these things. And he said, what apps do you have? I said, what's an app? Uh, you know, I don't understand that question. And he's like, things like games and, and stuff, apps. Like, I don't know what an app is. So he shows me where the app store is. He said, all oh, these things are free and you can get them. And, and now I'm like, one of you, like, I never put my phone down. So I got all these games and toys and newspapers and magazines and ESPN and NFL and KC Royals and KC Chiefs. And, like, I got everything at the touch of a button. And what happened is I, I, I got a phone for real simple purposes, talk and text. But what I realized is this phone actually does a lot more than talk and text to enhance my life. A lot of you, like me, became a Christian to go to heaven and have your sins forgiven. But you're going to realize God has so much more for your life than just going to heaven and being forgiven. God has like the coolest spiritual apps in the world that will add so much value to your life. You can press a button spiritually and talk to God and he'll talk back to you. When you truly learn to tune your spiritual rabbit ears to hear him, when you start reading your Bible, when you get in church faithfully. And what we find out is, is what was intended just to keep us out of hell becomes something that we never put down because it has changed our life forever. So I prayed this morning before church, and I prayed that we would be a spirit-led church. So what does that mean? A church that listens to God does what God wants us to do. A church full of spirit-led people. What does that mean? People who stop 
before they live their life and say, God, what do you want me to do here? And they wait for the answer. And even if they have to wait a month, six months, a year, they wait till they hear, and then they do it. That's the type of church. That's the type of people that God wants us to be. This step's probably the most difficult step for Christians to master, to really learn how to communicate with God. But, man, it's the most rewarding thing to happen when it really happens in your life. Now, if you're not a Christian, the first step for you, you say, well, how do I get that, that inner voice thing? How do I get the Holy Spirit? Well, you have to become a Christian. You have to ask God for it. But it's one of many free apps that God has that can be installed at the, at the push of a button. Salvation is free. You can become a Christian today. You can get the Holy Spirit today. And you can begin living for God. Not just going to heaven one day, but living for God in this lifetime. And I promise you it's the best life ever if you really want it. Let's close in prayer together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to learn your word. And uh, Lord, to be taught how to live for you. And Lord, I thank you that Paul started with what, what, what is the biggest hang-up for most of us, our past. And he said, you've got to get past your past, but once you get past the past, you can live for God. And here's how. And God, I pray that our church would be filled with Christians. Not that just aren't going to hell when they die, but people who are really trying to live for you, hear from you, share about you, are grateful for what you've done. And Lord, I pray that you you just give us a lot of people that have that heart so that we can change this community and touch it for the better. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in here, please, with nobody looking around, and you've never become a Christian, the only way you can receive the Holy Spirit is by becoming a Christian. But that's a free gift to you. Today you can become one. You say, what, what do I have to do? Not much, really. You just have to open up your heart and say, God, I'm ready to follow you. Help me change my life and, and follow you. If you've never done that, I'm going to pray a prayer today. It's pretty simple. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around. I'm going to pray a prayer. You can just repeat it after me. You don't even have to say it out loud. Just pray this in your head. Pray it in your heart. Pray it in your soul. And begin today connecting with God and then do it every day for the rest of your life. If you want to become a Christian today, pray this prayer. Dear God, today I want to become a Christian. And I want to open up my heart to begin living for you. Forgive me for the things that I've done in my life that I know are not living for you. And help me begin to live for you and to hear from you so that my life can be transformed from the inside out. With heads bowed and eyes closed, please, nobody looking around. If you just prayed that prayer today and said, Today, Christian, I became a Christian, would you just slip your hand up so that I can know it? I'm not going to ask you to stand or come forward. Yes. Anybody else? Yes. Thank you, God, for those who today said, Hey, today I became a Christian. Let them begin a brand new life in you. Now, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you're a Christian... You've said that prayer like I did. But you haven't really lived for God. You don't run everything by Him. Maybe you don't hear from Him the way you'd like to. And you want this year, the year 2012, to be the year that you live for God and you begin to hear from Him and to know God better. Then I want you to pray this prayer. And you don't have to pray it out loud. Just pray it in your heart. Pray this prayer. God, this year, I want to live for You. I want to know You better. And I want to make my life all about pleasing you. Help me to do that this year. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Now, God, thank you for those today who prayed to become Christians, those who, Lord, made a commitment to try to live for you this year. And, Lord, as a church, bless us as we move forward to touch this community with your gospel and share the good news that you've given us. We love you. Let's see things in Jesus' name and everyone said together. Amen. Ushers on.